But then 16 to 17, that's when you need to start the eye of the tiger yeah. kind of yeah. mentality. And and fittingly, like I said, the Newton Firehouse is right there. Mm-hmm. And so they'll probably be playing eye of the tiger when you make that one turn, that one right turn to start by the hills. Um, the year that I did it was year 2000. This is actually an uh, uh, indication of that. They were playing Rockefeller Skank by Fat Boy Slim. All right. Right on. Yeah. yeah. And, and the woman I was dating... Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Patrick Ollinger. I'm also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. No all-around good guy this week? (laughs) You've had a bad week? Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, actually, you know, I was thinking, like, literally as we're introducing ourselves, we should introduce a gimmick where, like, you introduce yourself something besides being an endurance athlete and coach every week. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not really me all that cool now that I've said that that's what we're going to do. So, yeah, you're going to do it anyway. Right on. Uh, anyway, um, Boston Marathon preview day. I know you've been looking forward to this. Oh, my gosh, yes. It's the best best day of the year for runners. <laughs> Our podcast is well, the Well, the marathon itself, not the, podca- the pre- this podcast This podcast preview. is what you've been waiting for. Yeah. Yeah. Boston Marathon, you qualified. Great. Fantastic. But this podcast... Is 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 why you really uh, are a runner, mm-hmm. um, but no, you really have. Patrick's really been looking forward to to doing this preview. Like when we sat down a couple months ago and started mapping out, okay, when are we going to do this? And we can talk about these various subjects. What are we talking about? It was like Boston Marathon preview, Boston Marathon preview, Boston Marathon preview. That was like the one thing that you kept coming back to, and I'm with that. I think it's great. Um, so I mean, tell us. I know we're going to get into the history and the significance of it, but I mean, why so fired up about the Boston Marathon? Sure. So, uh, I mean, obviously everybody knows, or a lot of people know about the um, kind of myth around the Boston Marathon. It is a very special race to to a lot of runners. And for me specifically, it really holds an important place in my heart and in in kind of my running history because it is the race that brought me back to running. So Mm -hmm. to kind of give you some background, um, I ran in high school and college, and I ran my last collegiate race uh, October of 2009. And was like, that's it, I'm done. I mean, it was almost like a bad breakup. I threw away all the clothes, mm-hmm. like burned like all the pictures of myself running. Right. I was like, that's it, right. I'm done, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. And, you know, there was a several year stretch from, from 2009 to 2013 where, you know, somebody may mention at work, hey, I hear you used to run. And it's like, yeah, I used to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, but not anymore, it's, you know, now I'm an adult and I, you know go to work and I right. buy a house and I you know, do the adult <laughs> things, try to be mature. Um, and then in 2013, uh, I was at work when uh, the bombing happened. And I remember my manager came in and said, there's been an explosion at the Boston Marathon. And I had several old college teammates who were running there. Mm-hmm. So I said, can I step away and see if they're okay? Mm-hmm. And I just remember going on to social media, going on to Facebook and seeing messages from them saying hey we heard an explosion we're okay don't really know what's going on that kind of thing and i remember spending the rest of that day watching cnn and it was just a very surreal day for me you know like like most people my age or really most you know people in 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 developed countries right now i've almost become desensitized to digital desensitized to digital images of violence yeah i mean i hate to say it but that's what the news is a lot of times Mm -hmm. But this was personal. I mean, I, I didn't see it on 
just on CNN. I saw it on my own Facebook feed. Yeah. I saw it with people I knew. Mm-hmm. And I remember that night I just I couldn't sleep and I was like, you know, I'm just going to I don't really know what to do about this. Obviously, I can't help the poor people who were injured. And so I did what I had always done when I had some loose ends in my life and previous years and I just dug out my old running shoes and I went for a run. Mm-hmm. And on the run, I started to dream up this idea. I was like, you know what? I want to see if I can run the next one. Yeah. I want to be there. I want to be a part of the group that, that kind of shows that this is not going to end such a great tradition. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the, the, the bad guys didn't really win. Right. They don't have the final say. And I remember that first run, I made it three miles, <laughs> which is not quite a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> It felt like it, though. It, felt, it sure did feel like it, but I was like, you know what? I want to do this. I want to give it one more chance. And I found a marathon in early September of that year. I qualified the day before the cutoff. So I literally ran the race Saturday and then uh, submitted my time yeah. for registration that Sunday. Yeah. And was lucky enough, it was my first ever marathon. I was... You know, had a couple months to go from being a couch potato to a marathoner. Mm-hmm. I had never run more than like 18 or 20 miles before that race mm-hmm. and was lucky enough to qualify. Mm-hmm. And then the deal I made with myself was if I wanted to qualify for Boston, run Boston, and then be done with being a runner again. Kind of, that's it. I've kind of scratched that itch and moved on. Right. But the more and more I started running and training, so much of the joys of running came back. I, I tell people it was almost like reconnecting with an old friend and realizing yeah. there was no hard feelings anymore. Right. And just so many of the joys of running that, that I love that we talk about on this podcast just came back. I loved, you know, the, the the feeling you get at the end of a long run, that feeling of accomplishment. I love the that kind of brutal dance you do with your body where you're trying to push yourself right up to the limit, almost to, on the verge of injury, and then kind of bringing it back and recovering. I loved the the anxiety you felt going into the race. I loved the camaraderie you felt with the people you trained with and raced with. Yeah. And, you know, from then I just kind of kept saying, all right, well, you know, now I've done this one, I'm going to do the next one. Yeah. So I've done it every year since then because, to me, this race has always been a celebration for how much I enjoy this sport, how thankful I am to have a sport like this in my life that can – continue running for for so many years mm-hmm. and um every year i go back i'm just thankful to have this in my life and by this i mean you know running marathoning the the endurance community yeah because it really is a special part of my life it was running was something i started when i was 15 so an important kind of you know stages of, of coming of age it was always the arena where i poured a lot of myself into it was a part of my life that you know, I was a very studious student, but if I got good grades, nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. But in running, like, the results were in the paper. People yeah. knew about it. Yeah. It was the first kind of public arena where I had to kind of take a stand and and accomplish something. And it couldn't, yeah. you know, shy away from conflict. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, back to the Boston Marathon. I am always look forward to this. Not so much because I want to run fast, but because I just want to enjoy the experience. Yeah. And for those of you who have ever been to Boston... During the marathon, it's unlike anything else because you'll just be on the subway and it doesn't matter who you are, um, you'll just turn to the person next to you and start talking to them about their training. And I always have interesting conversations with people at restaurants, on the train, on the walks to the expo, and I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody and they've said, 
oh, I've, I have the experience you had. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what you should do. Try this gel instead of that one. Yeah. Or try these running shoes. And it's, it's just, it's such a great community. Everybody who's on that starting line has made sacrifices. Yeah. Everybody there knows what it feels like to go for a long, cold run mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning when it's raining outside and oh, yeah. everybody else is maybe asleep or kind of drinking a cup of coffee on the porch and you're out there pounding the pavement or pounding the trails. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a race that's always been very special to me for that very reason because yeah. it really kind of hides the communal aspect of our sport. And it was, like I said, the race that brought me back to the sport. Yeah. For, for you, I mean, this would be your fifth time doing it. Mm-hmm. For you, it kind of exemplifies everything you like about running. Yeah. It sounds like. Um, and you have just positive associations with, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's what it's all about. Yeah. Michael Wardian, who's a, who's an ultra runner, a pro ultra runner, um, who happens to live in my sister's neighborhood, um, has, and he runs, um, 50 races a year, about Ooh. half of which are marathons and about the other half of which are ultra marathons. Um, it's kind of, that's his gig. That's his niche. Mm-hmm. Um, just run a whole lot of races all the time. Um, he, uh, he says that running the Boston Marathon, which he does every year, feels like coming home. Mm-hmm. He says it's kind of, it's kind of a homecoming every year. He sees a lot of the same people and, and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, what you said about, about running through the winter. Um, so I lived in New England the year that I did it. I did it in 2000. Yeah. And, um, um, I, um, I, I very much felt like the reason why it was such a big deal or one of the reasons why it was such a big deal in New England was because everybody who was from New England who was running it had had to train through the New England winter right? in order to be on the starting line. And it's been a tough winter for them this winter. Yes, it has. Um, and so, so there's there's a, a very high degree of, of um, hardiness that you have to have in order to be able to even make it to the starting line as a New Englander there in Boston. Um, so for me, yeah, I... I uh, I was graduated from college in 1996, continued to run fairly consistently for less than a year after that, so into about 1997. Um, got my graduate degree in uh, in 1998, 1999, and then started running again in 1999. Um, and, and I was living in New Hampshire that year. I was working at a, at a pretty innovative school in southern New Hampshire. And um, uh, I was coaching track and cross country while I was there. And one of my colleagues who knew I was a runner and, and, and knew I had run in college, and I was only three years out from running at a very high level, um, said, are you going to run the Boston Marathon? And this is in December before Boston's in April. Right. Um, and so it's also representative of how much it's changed over the course of just the past 20 years. Um, in December, she said, are you going to run the Boston Marathon? And I said, I don't have a qualifying time. And she says, well, you know, you're a good runner. Um, you can probably train for it and get a qualifying time. So I went on the website and it said qualifying times have to be run by March 15th. And wow. so, so, so I Googled and that's a month before the race. Um, and so I Googled and found a race in Maryland the last weekend in February. Um, and so I, I, um, signed up for that race. I uh, did a few long runs cause I was still running some, um, did, did, did a couple long runs there in the snow in New Hampshire. Um, and, uh, and went out and, and got my qualifying time at the Washington's birthday marathon in Greenbelt, Maryland. Um, and, um, I'm actually um, familiar with Greenbelt, Maryland. So, I've lived there for a year. Right yeah. on. Um, and, uh, and they have a marathon there. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Um, last week in February. So I know. Um, but, uh, got my qualifying time and then, uh, went on Monday, signed up for the Boston marathon and six weeks later I ran it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because, um, I, I, I feel very fortunate that my, my colleague encouraged me to do it. Um, because I had no idea what a big deal it was 
in that community, in that area, in New England, until the two weeks leading up to the marathon. I mean, so my alarm would go off in the morning. It'd be a morning show. And they'd be talking about the Boston Marathon on the morning shows. Right. And there, there were features about it on the nightly news every night, on the local news every single night. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a big deal. The only thing that I can compare it to is how much Atlantans were talking about the Olympics prior to the 1996 Olympics being in Atlanta. Right. That's, the, that's the only thing that, that that much buzz amongst people who are not running it I've ever seen. Right. Um, uh, that's the only comparable amount of buzz I've ever seen from, from the larger community before. Because, um, you know, we get fired up about, oh, Publix is coming up and, and you know, Ironman Chattanooga and stuff like that. People outside of that don't really know about Ironman Chattanooga, you right. know, but, but, but everybody throughout New England um, talks about that. Um, and then, of course, ran the race, ended up having a pretty good race, as it turned out somehow. Uh, just a bunch of leftover fitness from when I was in college, I guess. Um, but uh, as I was running the race, and we'll talk about this more in just a minute, I didn't realize how much lore was related to the Boston Marathon that I had internalized by reading Runner's World and stuff like that mm-hmm. over the course of the the previous five or six years that I've been a runner mm-hmm. until I actually ran it. And I was like, oh, this is Wellesley. Oh, these are the Newton Hills. Oh, that's Dick and Rick, Ho- Rick Hoyt. Right. You know, the the, the forerunners to, to Brent and Kyle Pease, uh, who uh, he always used to put. So I passed them around, around mile four or five, you know. Um, so, yeah, just... Uh, Incredible race. You know, I, I often will say um, Kona lives up to the hype. Mm-hmm. Boston Marathon lives up to the hype. New York City Marathon lives up to the hype. Uh, but Boston lives up to the hype. Yeah. yeah. You've heard great things about it, and it's great. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, you will not be disappointed. Sistine Chapel lives up to the hype. Yeah. Grand Canyon lives up to the hype. Boston Marathon lives up to the hype. Yeah. Um, so, and, we'll, oh, go ahead. And I can say, so for those of you who are maybe have been trying to qualify and you're close and it's you've gone through a tough winter of, of training, which it has been, it's been pretty cold, especially even here in Atlanta, mm. you know, keep digging and keep trying because it is worth it when you get there. Oh, yeah. Totally. Um, and it's worth it because even if you don't have necessarily a great race or a PR race, it's still a special event. Mm-hmm. And you know when you're running, this is not... Just a race. Yeah. And what you and I are talking about, particularly like what you're talking about, um, like I said, Mike Wardian feels the same way, that it exemplifies everything. It feels like homecoming for him. Mm-hmm. It, there are thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people in the race, and and majority of them would say the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's a very special race for a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Um, and I think, I always say that that um, I think it represents a really good goal yeah. for for people who are pretty fast and who are dedicated and and um who are not going to qualify for the olympic trials right you know and who who, and who might not be able to qualify for kona um because it's hard 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 to qualify for kona right um but but it's a good goal to to get that boston qualifying time and to to uh, to be on the starting line, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's a good reach goal for a lot of people, and it's again, it's one that if you attain it, it's worth attaining because it's a cool race. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. It's also an old race, so there's a lot of like I mentioned, there's a lot of lore around it. Um, the Boston Marathon, it was one of the first marathons. Um, people were kind of dabbling with these ultra endurance events in the late 1800s, and then when the Olympics were revitalized um, or revived in 1896. Um, by Pierre de Coubertin, um, one of the things he wanted to recapture with this whole kind of neo-Grecian feeling of the uh, of, of the Olympics um, was was uh, 
to, to, to recreate the run of Pheidippides from way back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so one of the, if not the very first marathon, and certainly the first thing to be called a marathon, uh, was at the, actually the, the 1896 Olympics, the first Olympics of the modern era. Um, and, and because it was so successful, and it was won by a Greek guy named Spiridon Lewis, which just made it that much better. Um, now but, that is a name. So, right? Yeah. Good Lord. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely one I don't ever have to look up. I remember that one, Spiridon Lewis. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, the... Uh, Good name for, hmm. Anyway, um, uh, the the Boston Marathon actually started the following year in 1897. So April of 1897, less than a year after that Olympic marathon, that first mm-hmm. Olympic marathon, it started. And they've had one every single year since then. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things, including the Olympics themselves, took time off during World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, there was not a 1940 Olympics, 1944 Olympics. Um, but the Boston Marathon continued unabated. Uh, through both world wars, through the Vietnam War, um, all the way up through the new millennium. Um, they had their and hundreds. Just okay. to give you an idea of how rare that is, I mean, we're talking the Boston Marathon continued through the wars, the Kentucky Derby continued through the wars, the Westminster Dog Show continued through the wars. Oh, that's important. Yeah. But, and I'm missing one more because I don't have it in front of me, but pretty much everything else did not. Right. The Super Bowl wasn't invented yet. World Series, kaput. Right. I mean, think about that. I yeah. mean, the World Series didn't make it through the wars. Right. But the Boston Marathon did. Yeah, yeah. The Boston Marathon, it's it's the world's oldest continuously running marathon, and it's the second longest running race, longest running running race. So second longest continuous, second, what am I trying to say, Patrick? You're trying to say that it's the second longest continuous race. Because the, the the race that has been running the longest yeah. is the Buffalo... Is it turkey Trot. Turkey Trot. Yeah. And the crazy part is the Turkey Trot was like, I believe, a month before the original yeah, yeah. Boston Marathon. Yeah, no, like, no, literally, so, they beat them by weeks. So, so I mean, it was a Turkey Trot, so, so it might have been around Thanksgiving. So, it was Thanksgiving, I'm going right. to go ahead and give Buffalonians uh, the, the... So, it wasn't the, a month, but so, it was so, like the couple months But, yeah, months less than before. a year. Yeah. yeah. And... and Kudos to Buffalo, the, the, the progenitors of the turkey trot, man, because that's the longest running race in the United States. Um, uh, and second place is the Boston Marathon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the reason why I'm getting Which hung one up of these on words. Is not like the other one. Yeah, right? The reason why I'm getting hung up on words is because longest running race. You see what I'm saying? Like, it makes it feel like the distance of the race. Right. And we're talking about how long the race has continually been staged. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, in 1924, they moved the start to where it is today, and, and the, the town green in Hopkinton, it's a point-to-point course, um, so you start 26.2 miles from the center of Boston, way out in Hopkinton. Um, the uh, the IAAF, uh, a few years before that, um, had standardized the marathon distance at 26 miles and 385 yards, um, and, and so they moved it back a little bit to Hopkinton, and literally that's where the start has been, and the course has not changed since 1924. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a couple of minor uh, uh, changes because of construction and stuff like that um, over the course of the past close to 100 years, um, but it's been the same ever since then. So how cool is that? I mean, you know, you think yeah. about the, the, the legends that have won that race, and, and all those of you who are running it are going to be running the same course that all those legends ran. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1970 is when they first injected qualifying standards. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a big running boom in the 1960s, as, as many of you are probably well aware, and into the 1970s. <clears throat> 197 people uh, ran the race in 1960. Um, wow. And then there was 447 people in 1965, so you know, it tripled in size. Um, and then there was 1,342 by 1969. And at that point, the Boston Athletic Association was like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. we got over 1,000 people now. 
we need to institute some standards here because they were worried that it was going to compromise the quality of the race if it got too big, which is hilarious by 2018 lens. Right. That, you know, so many thousands upon thousands of people run races and they were worried about it being over a thousand. Um, so anyway, they put in um, 1970, they said you have to run under four hours in order to qualify. Um, a year later in 1971, they say you have to run 330 in order to qualify. Um, and they said, I think they had a different one for masters. Um, in, uh, 1976, they lowered it to three hours and then 330 for masters for people over 40. And then in 1980, they dropped it down to 250, um, for anybody who's under 40. Um, and then over the course of the next couple of decades, they basically got more and more specific. Right. Um, and that's kind of where we are now is that 40 to 40, 40 to 44 has a different standard than 45 to 49 um, by like five minutes. Um, And so, so there's multiple standards now for all the different ages where it it used to be under 40, over 40. Right. Um, And I mean, they specify for gender, age. Yeah. 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 Um, Speaking of gender, um, uh, I mean, you're probably well aware 1966 is when the, uh, the, the first woman to, to, to run it was uh, a woman named Roberta Gibb uh, won. Um, She uh, was not signed up. Um, and, or no, she was signed up and, and she went through, but, but, um, uh, she crossed the finish line and, and, and was celebrated. And then the next year there was a woman named Catherine Switzer, um, who signed up as K.A. Switzer. Um, and, and she sometimes is mistakenly thought to have been the first woman ever to run the Boston Marathon. Um, and it's her that there's the famous picture of the Boston Marathon director jumping out on the course and trying to tackle her off the course. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there, there's that picture of her. Um, women weren't officially added for about another three or four years until 1970 or 1971 there. Um, and now of course, you know, not quite half the field, but close to half the field is, is, is women. So yeah, good stuff. Um, and again, this is all history. I feel like Boston more than other races. I feel like you feel that history. Yes. When you're running it. Uh, the starting line in Hopkinton, you're surrounded by all these Cape Cod style homes. Yeah. And they will. They look like they were built about the time the first marathon was run there. And I don't mean that like in a derogatory way. I mean, if you've ever been to Boston, yeah. it's a city that... I mean, first of all, like when I first got to Boston and got off the plane, one of the first human beings I saw was a guy dressed in a Revolutionary War outfit, <laughs> screaming about the Redcoats. And he was just going... I mean... He was just a guy. Right? He, he was just a guy. He yeah, wasn't, wasn't even a paid tour guy. Um, but the history of Boston... If you like, so for example, we're here in Atlanta, and when we say Atlanta history, we mean like the 1996 Olympics. Yeah, like, yeah. it's all captured on. It's, it's, kind of, it's civil rights movement forward. Yeah, re- right. Yeah. Um, and even then, there's almost a gap after the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. But in Boston, you just you feel the history. The buildings are older. Yeah. Um, they really have done a great job of preserving a lot of the historical sites. Yeah. Um, so everything about it, you just feel the history I, of I, the city. Yeah, I totally agree. And in some ways of the country and mm-hmm. of the race and the sport. Yeah. I mean, because like you mentioned about how, um, you know, the first woman ran in, what would you say, 1966? Yeah. I mean, that was not that long ago. Right. And you kind of, when you go to the race, they remind you of that. Mm-hmm. They have that in the expo. They have mm-hmm. generally like, you know, booths that kind of remind you about like the history of women in the Boston Marathon. They mm-hmm. have... Mm-hmm. You know, kind of yeah. a lot of reminders about where this race has been and where it's going. Yeah, you're totally right. I think that that, um, and I think that's twofold. I think that's both a push and a pull. I think on the, on the one hand, when you're in Boston, as you suggest, when you're in Boston, 
there's more of a historical feel in Boston. Right. You know, Atlanta, and I like Atlanta a lot, and this is home, and I've, I've always enjoyed Atlanta, but Atlanta has more of a cutting-edge type feel to me. Yes. That, 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 that we're at the forefront, we're moving forward, you know, technology, new stuff, latest styles, that kind of thing. It feels right. very cutting-edge. Um, Boston doesn't feel cutting-edge always. It often feels historical. Yes. Um, and that's just sort of the ethos of the place. And so, so you're already kind of in that mindset when you're there, and, you, and you're going to bring that with you when you go into the marathon itself. But then, in addition, Boston knows that they feel that way, and so they play it up, like you're Big saying. Big time. Um, and, and I mean, all their sports teams are the Patriots, right? the New England Revolutionaries, I think is the soccer <laughs> team, or Revolution, I think. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, so, so they, I mean, they, 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 they play that up. You go, you go in the Nike town in Boston, at least it used to be this way, and and there's a map of the Boston Marathon course in Nike Town, and it's like it's like the layout of the place. It's right. like it's like the store's theme, right? Um, and of course, there's the big sign with Hopkinton and the Newton Hills and all that sort right. of thing, you know. And 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 Wellesley at the halfway mark with all the screaming girls and and and, and all that stuff. Um, like those things are literally the theme of the entire store, 365 days a year, not in the month leading up to the race, you know. Um, and 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 so yeah, the race recognizes that history is an important part of of that area, um, and that that extends to their approach to marketing and and talking about the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's talk about the, this year's race then. Um, uh, big pro field this year. We uh, I want to say was it the day that we it was it was one of the first podcasts that you were on with us, Patrick. Where where where. You talked about the announcement was made of the pro field, mm-hmm. um, and and so I want to kind of go through the the fairly stunning pro field, yes. uh, both men and women that are going to be uh, in the Boston Marathon here. So just to kind of run down it real quickly, um, and these are, are certainly just the highlights. Uh, start with the men. Uh, you have Jeffrey Karui, who last year won Boston and won the World Marathon Championships. You have Lisa DeCisa, who was the 2013 and 2015 Boston Marathon champion, and he was the 2013 World Championships Marathon silver medalist. Um, he was also part of the Breaking 2 Project, you remember? Yep. Um, you have uh, uh, Limmy Bur- uh, Bernal, uh, who is the 2016 marathon Boston Marathon winner, and so that means you have the winner from 2013, 2015, 2016, and 2017. Mm-hmm. The only one of the the most recent runners winners that you don't have is Meb Kafleski, and of course it's because he's retired. Uh, he won in 2014, and that's super exciting one. Uh, you have Tamarit Tola, um, who uh, won the. Uh, 2017 silver medalist in the world championships behind Jeffrey Karui. Uh, and he also won the Dubai Marathon uh, in the fastest ever debut by a marathoner last year. Uh, he's a medalist in the Olympic 10,000 meters. Um, and then you have, of course, the Americans. Uh, Galen Rupp was second in the Boston Marathon last year, and then he won the 2017 Chicago Marathon uh, back in October. Um, as most of you know, he has two Olympic medals, a silver in the 10,000 meters in 2012, and a bronze in the marathon in 2016. Um, you have Shadrach Biwat, who was fourth in Boston last year. Um, and you have, um, uh, uh, let's see, Elkanah Kibbett, who was a top American in the 2000 World Championships Marathon. You have Timothy Ritchie, who uh, was the 2017 U.S. National Marathon champion. Um, you have Dathan Ritzenhain, who is an Olympian and won the New York City Half just a couple weeks ago. Uh, you have Abdi Abdirahim, who is still killing it and is, yeah. is, is, is an Olympian, despite the fact he's... I think a year younger than I am. He's 41, 42 years old. You have Ryan Vale, you have Scott Smith, you have Andrew Bumbleau. Um, just an amazing field. And you have Yuki Yamauchi, 
Kawauchi, uh, the uh, the guy that we talked about at the very beginning of the year who has run almost 80 sub-220 marathons yep. from Japan. So don't want to look over my man, Yuki Kawauchi. Um, then, that's just the men. <laughs> yeah. And so so you got to say that Jeffrey Karui, since he was last year's champion, and, and then he was the world marathon champion last year, you have to say that he's a favorite. Right? Um, but then, I mean, Galen Rupp, you know, was second last year, and then he won the Chicago Marathon. Um, and so, and he's got so much speed, and, and most of us, including me, feel like he hasn't really tapped into what he can do in the marathon just yet. Yeah, um, and Galen Rupp kind of has that same quality as the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, where he, he's never let us down in a big spot, whether it's the Olympics, yeah, the Chicago Marathon, right? the Boston Marathon. He's always kind of yeah. come through, so... Yeah, and the, whether that's skill or luck, who knows? But yeah. I would say he's definitely the top American in terms yeah. of uh, the chance of winning. I, I agree with that, um, and I, I like Dathan Richardson a lot. I've always liked him, um, and and that New York City half that he finished. Did I say he won it? He finished second. Okay, uh, he finished second in the New York City half. Um, uh, the winner was Ben True, who I like a lot, by the way, running his first ever half marathon. Uh, we can talk about that some other time, but um, but uh, but. Um, yeah, I think the Galen Rupp, as far as the Americans goes, is probably the best hope we have for, for a win on the men's side. Um, I think it's interesting. So much of, of pro running um, and who wins is the way the race unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you normally kind of, the f- people watch the favorite. And the favorite kind of has a target on their back. And so people don't want to, like, make a move on the favorite and stuff like that, you know? Um, you know, 2014, that so famous year, that first year you ran at the Mevka Flesky one, um, he was able to win in large part because everybody was watching another runner. They were all watching the favorite, and Mevka Flesky kind of slipped away, built up this insurmountable lead, and was able to hold everybody off in the last 5K. Yep. Uh, the way the race unfolds really, really matters, you know? Um, and so uh, it's kind of interesting. You have three guys who are former champions. You have the world championship champion last year. You have the world championship silver medalist last year. You have somebody who very recently won the Chicago Marathon and is a two-time medalist on the track at the Olympics. I mean, who are they going to watch? Right. <laughs> you know what I'm that's, saying? That's a good point. Who has the target on their back? Right. There's almost not one. Yeah. Yeah. And so you kind of wonder what that that's going to mean for the race. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, I, I heard an interesting podcast with Shalane Flanagan, who we'll talk about here in just a minute, a couple weeks ago. Um, and she was talking about her training for Boston. Um, and she was saying that, that her training focus is to be prepared for however the race unfolds. That's and so so if that means it's hard from the gun, she's going to be ready for that. That means if it starts off slow and then finishes super fast for that, she wants to be fit enough to be able to do that. Um, and I think that's that's a particularly good strategy with this deep and this talented of a field in both the men's and women's side um, because the race could unfold in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... I got my participant newsletter in the in the mail this week, and it was kind of a bummer since I got injured and couldn't run it, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just starting to run again. Um, but the silver lining is I'm going to be able to watch the race. Yeah, right. <laughs> All you suckers up there running it, I'm going to be able to, to sit there and track it and watch it and comment on it on Twitter and everything else. And so, so I'm excited about that. Um, let's talk about the women. Mm-hmm. Uh, undoubtedly, the favorite in the women's race is Edna Kiplagat. Uh, yep. She won last year. She's also won London and New York and Los Angeles. Um, just a brilliant runner. Um, yeah. And, and she, she's clearly the favorite. So, so 
Um, she's the one with the target on her back, even though there's lots of other great runners in there as well. Uh, Eunice Kirwa, uh, she was the 2000 Olympic marathon silver medalist. Um, Acephalich Merja, uh, she was a London champion and a three-time winner of the Dubai Marathon. Uh, Bujanes Diba, uh, who is the 2014 uh, Boston Marathon champion, and she's the course record holder. Uh, she's the only woman ever to go under 220. Um, at, at the Boston Marathon, which is a stunningly fast time anywhere, but particularly for, for a woman at the Boston Marathon. Um, and then among the Americans, you have four of the five fastest U.S. marathon women of all time in this race. Um, um, you have Dina Castor, Jordan Hesse, Shalane Flanagan, and Des Linden. Um, Dina Castor, we should mention first, she's actually the national record holder in the marathon. Um, she's older than I am. She's 45 years old. She's a London marathon winner. Um, she... Uh, got uh, the bronze medal in the Olympic marathons in 2004. Um, she's not contending for the win, um, but I think she is looking to, to set a master's record, um, a U.S. master's women's uh, marathon record. Um, um, well, I'll take that back because she, this is not a record-eligible course. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but one way or another, she's probably going to run pretty fast, um, and she, she's worth keeping an eye on because she's a great runner. She's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, Shalane Flanagan, not one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> but uh, she uh, she won the New York City Marathon, of course, in a very emotional win. Uh, she's an Olympic silver medalist um, in uh, in the 10,000 meters. Uh, Desi Linden, who I just mentioned, she's finished in the top five and seven world marathon majors. Um, she missed winning Boston by just two seconds in 2011. Um, Desi Linden, I know she's one of your favorites, you said. Yeah. She, she's I identify with her because she's always second or third. And, like, no matter who's first, she's always second or third. And it's kind of stunning. Um, and so you have to appreciate that level of consistency, even though it's consistency for the podium, not necessarily consistency for the win. Um, I agree 100%. Um, which is why I'm rooting for her in this one. I yeah. think Kiplagat's probably going to win. That would be probably who I threw him. If I had to throw a ring in the hat, I would, I would guess her. But I would really love for Desiree Linden to win because yeah. she's been so consistent. She's been such a great ambassador for the running community at large. Mm-hmm. And you always want to... To me, there's no, no greater joy in sports, or one of the great joys in sports, is seeing an athlete who has you know, pushed and pushed and pushed and been on the verge of greatness or a mm-hmm. great accomplishment yeah. finally break through. Absolutely. You finally see Michael Jordan win that championship. You finally see LeBron win that championship. Oh, yeah. You... You know, we mentioned Buffalo earlier. It'd be really nice if poor Jim Kelly would have gotten a Super Bowl and not <laughs> five runner or four Super Bowl losses or whatever it was. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so I've, I'm hoping she can, you know, I'm hoping that her day comes, you know, at the marathon this year. I hope so too, man. I like her too. I like her too. Uh, Jordan Hesse, because we're not done with all the women in the race. Right, we haven't even mentioned the, the four fast American women. So Jordan has say she was third in both Boston and in Chicago last mm-hmm. year. Uh, she also had, I think it was the fastest debut marathon ever by an American woman at Boston last year. She ran two twenty three, which is super fast for a first mm-hmm. marathon. Um, and then you have my favorite, uh, Molly Huddle. Um, she's a uh, she was not one of the ones that we just mentioned here. She's only run one marathon, but she has more than twenty national titles, uh, and she's an American record holder in the five thousand meters, the ten thousand meters, and in the road five k. I think I like her for a wide variety of reasons, not the least of which is that her 10,000 meter PR and my 10,000 meter PR are the same. I like it. To the second. Of course, hers is the national record, um, but you know. Um, she, uh, she also, it's worth mentioning, uh, earlier this month, uh, there was a U.S. 15K championship in Jacksonville, um, and she beat the crap out of Jordan Hesse um, and a few other folks um, and, and, and won the U.S. 15K championship. Yeah. So really a super impressive race. performance. Yeah. And so, you know, she's a, she's a 10,000-meter person. You know, mm-hmm. she, she, she set that American record in that, that scorchingly fast 
2016 Olympic 10,000 meters uh, in Rio. Um, but we'll have to see whether, you know, and, and that, that translates to 15K, right? That translates to half marathon. We'll see how, how, whether she's ready to take that step all the way up. So it's kind of cool, actually. I feel like you have Shalane Flanagan and, and certainly Dina Castor and maybe to a lesser degree Desi Linden who are kind of cycling out. You know, who are sort of in, in the in the dusk of their of their marathon careers, and you have Jordan Hesse who just started, and Molly Huddle who just started doing marathon. You know, who's, who's about to do her second one here um, after kind of testing the waters last year in in New York. Um, and so you kind of have like the, the the new generation and the old generation here in the same race. Um, you have also you know not to leave them out. You have Serena Burla. Uh, she finished tenth and eleventh at the 2015 and 2017 uh, World Championship marathon. Um, and then you have Sarah Hall. Not to be left out, also, um, who was uh, the 2017 U.S. National Marathon champion, and here we are mentioning her last, and she won the U.S. Championship last year. So, um, so good for her. So, you think Kate Blagat's going to win? I, if I had to guess, yeah, that yeah. would be the one. Yeah, I, she's the safe guess. Yeah, right. I mean, she's this, she's, and so unlike the men's race, I, f- I do feel like they're going to be keeping an eye on her. Right. Um, I do think it'd be interesting. So, so. When um, when Bujanes Diba in 2014 set that course record, that race, one of the reasons why it was so fast is because Shalane Flanagan went blasting out. Yes. And set a really, really blistering pace over the first half of the race. And we're talking about strategy for the race here in just a minute, and that's not a good strategy, but but she set this really, really, really fast pace at the outset and, and kind of set the stage for a fast race. Not just a tactical race, but a fast race. Um, and And... A woman named Rita Jiptu, who was ultimately um, disqualified for, for an adverse drug finding uh, for being a doper, um, was she crossed the finish line first, but was ultimately disqualified, and then and then uh, Debo was was then given the win. Um, so anyway, it's kind of back to the way the race unfolds matters. Right. Um, you know, Shalane Flanagan held back in the first part of the New York City Marathon this past year, and she had more going into the last 5K than everybody else did, like a lot more. Um, so it'll be interested to see whether she learned this lesson in New York of holding back and and kind of running more strategically and then trying to really blast that last 5K or 10K or whether she's going to try and, you know, really lay it out there. And then if she does that, Molly Huddle, who has, you know, who, who literally broke Shalane Flanagan's 10,000 meter American record, has that kind of speed. So Molly Huddle would probably beat all of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. So it'll just be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like I said, enjoy running the race, wondering what's going on up front. I'll be sending you text messages along the way. Not that you'll be able to read. I will not be te- checking them. <laughs> right on, right on. So let's talk a little bit about strategy. So, so we talked about the way the race unfolded, and we talked last week um, on this podcast about how okay, the way the race unfolds that matters for the pros up front, and it matters more in team sports um, where they're where they're having to to directly confront their competitors, but for the vast majority, 99% of the people running the Boston Marathon, including most people we know running the Boston Marathon, including you, mm-hmm. um, you're kind of competing against yourself, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's 25,000 individuals um, that mm-hmm. are out there running that race, right? Um, and so um, given that, you can, you can and you should have a strategy and you should enact that strategy. You should have a plan and you should, you should enact that plan. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things you need to kind of keep in your plan there if you're, if you're running the Boston Marathon. Why don't you kick us off? Sure. So I'll say, first of all, um, a couple of weeks ago we did a podcast on marathon planning in general. And in many ways, this is kind of the, the, the brother or sister podcast to that in which we kind of go through and talk about 
planning that's specific to the Boston Marathon itself and what some of the specifics of the Boston Marathon um, mean for you when you're planning out your race, when you're forming a strategy for the race, and what it means for you as an individual runner. Because it is a lot different than most races for than for like running the public's marathon, for example. Logistically, it's different. Um, you, the you're going to be surrounded by a lot of people running fast. You're going to have crowd support from the start all the way through the finish, and that's yeah. actually something to get used to. Five hundred thousand people show up, right? Yeah. So we're just going to. This is kind of a, the companion podcast to that one, and we're going to talk about some things that are specific to the Boston Marathon and what you need to think about when planning for your own Boston Marathon. And the first thing that's really different that, that most people are not used to, if, they are, if they're fast enough to qualify for the Boston Marathon, they're probably also not used to starting a race at 10 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. like Boston does. I think it's actually like 10.18 or something. I was going to say, it's of, a little bit later than that for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Kind of, it's kind of something like that. And I could just share a story from, from my own personal experience. And my first ever Boston was in 2014. It was my second ever marathon. And the way it worked was I had seven years of experience as a 5K mile 10K guy on the track. Right. And as you know, when you're running on the track, the main inhibitor is how much oxygen you can get into your lungs and into your legs. Mm-hmm. Fueling isn't really that big. Like yeah. no, one, no one has a right. gel during 5K <laughs> on the track. Um, just, that, just that concept is laughable. Yeah. Like, like the idea that somebody's going to take a gel in the middle of their, their 1500. So I went into the, the race. It was my second ever marathon. And I really didn't plan out the gel situation or the eating situation. And so I remember I think I had my breakfast in the hotel room at like 6 a.m. Because you got to be at the, at the Boston Commons to get on the bus and go to the starting line really early. Mm-hmm. Like long before the 10 a.m. start. And then I went about another four hours of not eating anything. And then I had about one gel during the marathon because I was training by myself. And I didn't really know other people doing marathons. So I just thought, oh, I'll bring this just in case I get hungry on the run. And I had the bonk to end all bonks. I mean, <laughs> the final 10K was just an absolute death march. And then when I looked back, and then when I remember I ended the race and they gave me, I think, some like some candy or something, and all of a sudden the lights came back on and I was right. okay again. But the real lesson learned is when you're, one other thing to think about when you're, when you're planning for Boston is with such a late start, it's yeah. like, for example, at 2014, I went from like 6 a.m. to like, one o'clock in the afternoon right. of having one gel. Right. That's not and, good. And, and that's in, not good and if in you're. The meantime, you ran a marathon. Right. That's not good if you're yeah. watching Netflix, much <laughs> much less running a marathon. So you really need to plan out the fueling situation. Yeah. You know that is the one race where wake up and have a pretty full breakfast. Now, yeah. not bacon and eggs, obviously, mm. but have a few bagels, have bananas, have apples, mm. and you know it's plan that out in your training. Have a morning where you wake up. And eat a relatively hearty breakfast before your long run so you can kind of know what that feels like and what works for you and what doesn't. And then I would say, too, pack some snacks to have on the bus ride over and in the few hours that you're waiting at Athletes Village because, like I said, it's a long time. Even if you weren't running a marathon, even if you just had to go through the motions and stay in Athletes Village Mm -hmm. um, for most of the day, that would still be a very long day to not have nutrition. Yeah. I feel like we so we talked in generalities a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about race prep about this notion of of uh, of, of late morning starts or mid morning starts yeah. right and and 
And and I mentioned how the New York City Marathon starts a little bit later, uh-huh. and so it takes so long to get from your hotel, which is near the finish line, down to Staten Island where the starting line is. The Boston Marathon is another good example of this. Right. It's a point-to-point marathon um, that starts in a little bitty small town outside of the, the, the marquee town, outside and of if, Boston. if you haven't done the marathon since the bombing, it's not just driving the bus 26 miles out. Mm-hmm. It's driving the bus 26 miles out and going through several security checkpoints. All oh, right. Um... So it's not just yeah. It's it's not a quick ride. Yeah, yeah. And so and, and as I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, so you, you not only need to think about it in terms of fueling what you do, mm-hmm. you also need to think about it in terms of clothing. Yep. Um, because you know it could be a cool morning, and and so you need to wear some extra layers and play, plan to shed them. But you also need to think about it in terms of of your mental state. Yes. And so so many of us are accustomed to okay, so you get up. You have a little breakfast, you make your way to the trails, you run, you do your long run, or you know, you do a race. And so you get up, you go, and you get your number at the race, you wait a few minutes in your car, you listen to some hype-up music, you do your little warm-up, and then you, then you go out and, you, and you, you race your race, right? whole thing takes less than 30 minutes. Um, this one, you're going to get up, you're going to have breakfast, you're going to start thinking about your race from the moment you, from you wake up. It's going to be the main thing on your mind. It's still going to be four hours before you actually begin putting one foot in front of the other in the race. Right. And so you need to prepare for that kind of, of, of mental challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not psych yourself out, not get nervous, not waste a whole bunch of energy, you know, fidgeting prior to the race, um, because it's still going to be a little while from the moment you wake up until the race is actually run. Exactly. Um, and so, so it's important to kind of visualize that, um, that kind of that sort of mental relaxation that you need to make sure that you're doing um, with that mid-morning start. Um, there's no warm up, mm-hmm. you know, since I just mentioned warm up, um, I think the elites do have actually a warm up area. Um, but, uh, but for most folks, that means, you know, running the first, uh, uh, little bit of the race at, uh, slower than goal pace. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about the actual pace and all that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. So the first thing to know, so first of all, one of the things I've noticed is whenever I tell, whenever I meet somebody who's doing the Boston marathon for the first time. One thing I've heard over and over again is they say, I'm looking forward to this because it's net downhill, so it's going to be fast. Mm -hmm. That is incorrect um, in terms of it. Or that is, I would say, that does not bear itself in in terms of um, previous results. It's not going to make you faster. Right. And the reason is, even though it is a net downhill, and I think there's roughly a 480 foot or so drop Mm -hmm. in elevation... Most of that drop in elevation is in the first three to four miles, mm-hmm. and it is a very crowded field, and you can't really use that downhill because you are packed in there like you're at a concert, so you can't open up the stride and kind of stride down the hill. Mm-hmm. You just got to kind of be part of the uh, the cow herd and just or the horse herd and just kind of let it flow. Mm-hmm. So in terms of race strategy, um, you know, one thing people also ask is, you know, should I try to run even splits? Should I try to bank time on the downhill so I can be prepared for the for the uphill? And first and foremost, and I think this should be number one on everybody's mind is there is no struggle quite like the struggle at the end of Boston <laughs> if you don't have anything left. Yeah. I can speak from experience. Yeah. Every marathon is unforgiving. This one is especially unforgiving mm-hmm. um, for several reasons. One. There's a lot of hills at the end, and it's not one big one. It's not just Heartbreak Hill. It's a series of hills, mm-hmm. and it's it it kind of can extend your wall. A lot of people hit the wall at mile 20, but if, if you've gone out too fast, mm-hmm. you can hit it much sooner because the hills start much sooner. Yeah. So, uh, and that can be pretty unforgiving to be at mile 17 and not have anything left yeah. for another nine miles. Yeah. 
Second, you're going to be surrounded by a lot of fast people. So emotionally, when you have people kind of flying by you, a lot of people, it can be pretty unsettling. Plus, um, plus, plus you're going to have a lot of people around you that are running stupid. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of people around you that, that I mean, because like, like, like you just said, uh, and not to jump all over what you just said, it literally drops 300 feet in the first four miles. Right. Um, I mean that's that's significant downhill, but it, but it's but it's slight enough to where to where you're not going to be breaking, right? Right, and so 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 you can you you're just going to be running faster, mm-hmm. um, and so people get out there and and they're fired up and they've done their training and and they've pointed themselves towards Boston and they have all this emotion like here we go Boston Marathon and they tear ass through the first five k of the race and then it flattens out and then they go up the big hill at mile twenty one. Mm-hmm. And and they are crushed. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for people from the Atlanta area, um, I, I often will compare the Boston Marathon um, to the Peachtree Road Race in mm-hmm. terms of, of um, in terms of profile, because the Peachtree Road Race also goes out with a net downhill over the course of the first five k, and then miles four and five you go uphill, and people will talk about oh heartbreak hill, heartbreak hill. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, it's so incredible. In the Peachtree Road Race, it's not that hard. It's just that everybody's gone out too hard in the first half. Same thing with with the with the the Boston Marathon heartbreak hill. It it, it basically cli- uh, climaxes at mile twenty one. Yep. Um, and so you know, I remember when I first got to the top of it when I ran it back in two thousand. I was like, that's it, right? You know, and because as a hill, if you come from a hilly area, it's not a particularly hard hill, but it's really hard given that a it's at the twenty one mile mark of the race. Um, and B, more importantly, so many people go out too fast in that first 5K, and that's where it catches up with them. Yeah. Um, and it catches up in a very cruel way. Yeah. Absolutely. Understandably. Um, so anyway. So to kind of to, to kind of backtrack a bit, um, so we talked about you know the late start, and you really need to plan for that mentally, mm-hmm. you know, and in terms of a feeling perspective. Mm-hmm. From a general perspective, kind of the second big tip is to, to keep the hills in mind mm-hmm. when planning this race, when yeah. planning out what you want your pacing to feel like, right. what you want what your pacing to be, because um, once you get the hills, you can't go back and say, okay, that was too fast. Let me right. let me or I overestimated my ability. Let me go back. Right. So. What that means is in the early miles is go out relaxed and just try to keep a level head about you. Mm-hmm. And generally on this podcast, we talked a lot about running for by feel. Mm-hmm. I would actually recommend not running by feel the first four mm-hmm. miles or so because you're going to feel great. <laughs> it's going to be exciting. Yeah. It's going to be downhill. Yeah. Everybody around you is going to be going fast. But this one, I would say it's almost good to run at your gold marathon pace for the first four miles or so, mm-hmm. knowing that... Yeah, that's going to be a much slower effort than your goal marathon effort. Mm. But it almost helps keep you, um, or for me at least, it's always kept me kind of level-headed. Yeah. And if if that was too that or that is too slow, I can always make it up later in the race. The marathon's a long race. Mm. You're not going to... No race is ever won in the first couple miles, but they can be lost. Yeah. And they're lost by going too fast, not by going too slow. Right, right. No, <coughs> certainly. Um, I think that the... Um, I, I think I would probably tweak your advice just a little bit, um, even though I agree with you in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I would say it's okay to go out a little bit fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if your goal is to run eight-minute pace, mm-hmm. and, and that is your goal, so, so that's right about 3.30 for the marathon, right? Um, if your goal is to run eight minute pace, your your opening miles 
shouldn't really be any faster than 750. Yes. You can expect them to be a little bit fast, right? Um, but if but if but if you're like, all right, here we go, and your first three miles are are seven flat for each of them, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh well, downhill mile, banking time. Um, that's a dumb strategy. Yeah. Um, and, and you're going to pay for that later on. Um, you have to have to have to um, uh, hold back in those first few miles. Um, like you say, I think that that. There's so many different factors that, that, that are contributing in those first three miles to people going out too fast. The emotions of the race, the other people who are going out too fast around you and are all running away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, the crowds are there. Um, um, just all of those things kind of conspire together. And then, of course, the downhill. All those things conspire together and create this, this snowball effect that, that, that inspire people to run too fast in that, those opening miles. And like you say, it's devastating. Yeah, and you're almost kind of anxious because it's been such a long morning. Yeah. You almost feel like you're at the end of the race yeah. at the starting line. Exactly. Walk. That's another factor I didn't even mention, but you're totally right about that. I couldn't agree more. Um, and so all of those things, um, I think I think I would say the takeaway is be aware of that in those opening miles and don't start too fast. Oh, hey, we got a visitor. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Give us a minute. Thanks. All right, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, You'd be shocked that, you know, I have twin sons, and that's the first time in three years that they've actually uh, uh, busted on the podcast. So Yeah, must they're, be lunchtime. They're, they're, well, they, 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 it's right over here on their birthday, and so they like to talk a lot about their birthday presents and stuff here. But anyway. Um, so I do the same, and I'm not four anymore, so <laughs> I, can't, I can't blame them. <laughs> All right, so downhill for that first half. Take it easy. Splits, I would say, should hover around your goal. Yeah, and um, I would say, too, um, another thing to be aware of is... So the, the first three miles or so, I mean, you're packed. It's almost like running in the middle of a rock concert mm-hmm. where you don't have assigned seating. Like right. it's you're elbow to elbow. There's a lot of there's people. You, in front you've of been you. to a rock concert where there's assigned seating. Um, what kind of lame rock concerts are you going? Well, to? the opposite. I've never actually been to one, so I'm the guy that's trying to like <laughs> figure out what it's actually like. Right. But anyways, I mean, it's all- okay. Well, I guess assigned seats. You're, like, you think the row you're in. So, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. But I was totally thinking. About, I was like conflating a rock concert in like a ninth grade classroom. Yeah. Anyway, okay, my bad. Um, Keep going. Anyways. So there's a lot going on. I would say in general, stick to one side and and be calm. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is, so when you run the marathon, they're gonna have a mile, or they're gonna have water and Gatorade at every single mile marker. It's gonna be on the right side, and then it's gonna be on the left side. And they, I mean, they've done this before, obviously, as we've, <laughs> as we've discussed. So it's very well planned out. So you'll see it on the right side, and then there's nothing on the left. Mm-hmm. Don't panic. Mm-hmm. The the Water on your left is coming up once the the water on the right yeah. ends. Yeah. And you will see a lot of people burning a lot of energy because they'll see the water and they'll literally run horizontally from the crowd and run people over and, mm-hmm. and get run over to try to get to that water the first couple miles. Yeah. So A, be calm. You know, know that the water's gonna be there for you. Mm-hmm. And also kinda keep your head on the swivel because there will be some nutsos. Right. You know, balls. Yeah. Run, you know, running from from side to side. Right. And then another thing I would say is a lot of people, you know, you do kind of have to just go along with the flow. Mm-hmm. And if the if the flow is is not exactly what you want to run pace wise, yeah. that's I would say that's okay as long as it's not too fast. That's okay mm-hmm. because it is infinitely better to just stay relaxed the first three miles than to be that net so burning energy zigzagging, you know, panicking about. You know, I've fallen off my pace. Oh, I'll never be able to make it up. Right. You know, because you're going to burn a lot more energy, not just physically, but also emotionally. Yeah. If you've kind of burned through your reserve the first couple miles or so. For sure. So pick a side, stay on that side, and kind of keep your head on a swivel and know 
some people are going to be a little overexcited. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Just don't be one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stick to your nutrition plan. Stick to, stick to your facing plan. Right. Now, so, so let's get beyond the first 5K here. Um, after that, um, it kind of rolls a little bit. But, mm-hmm. I mean, really, once you get to about the four-mile mark, um, it stays... If, if you're from a hilly area, if you're from Atlanta, it's going to be far less hilly than any run you do right. for, for the next long while. Right. Um, and that's good. Um, right. You know, that's fast. And so, so, so that's a positive thing. It lets you lock into that kind of rhythm. But that being said, there's some some miles that have a slightly more uphill and some miles that have slightly more downhill. Now, again, if you're accustomed to running in a hilly area, this should not really throw you off all that much. Um, you know, again, if your goal is eight-minute pace, okay, you had a little bit more uphill in that mile, so it was 810. Oh, yeah, a little bit more downhill in that mile, so it was 755. Is you, you can expect some variance in your pace there. As long as it's hovering around your goal, you're good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you should expect every single one of your miles to be eight flat. No, like this is not Chicago. Goal. Yeah, this right. is not Chicago. This is not Dubai. Right. You know, this is this is not a course that, that, that favors these exact same splits for every single mile. Um, um, you know, the New York City Marathon is, is the same way. There are some miles that have some uphills, some miles that have some downhills. Um, the, the, in, in Boston, you have your goal pace, but if you pass through and you say, oh, that was five seconds slow, don't freak out and speed up. Um, um, but likewise, if it's five minutes fast, don't freak out and slow down. As long as you're locked in to, to that proper effort level, you can expect your pace uh, to hover around those numbers. All right. So then you get to mile 20. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you take, first of all, you take a turn around. You, there's one turn on the entire course. Yeah. And, so, and it's right around mile 17 or mile 18, right? Yeah. Um, well, there's two turns. There's just a couple in the last half mile. Right. Um, right. But you take that one right turn when you're in Newton, right there in front of the firehouse, um, and you start going up and down some hills, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's right there around 16 miles, actually. Um, and you start going up and down some hills. It's so-called Newton Hills. You go up one, then you kind of flatten out, and you go up another, and then you kind of come down a little bit, and you go up another short one, and then it flattens out. And then the big one uh, around mile 20 to 21 there. Um, and that's Heartbreak Hill. Talk about your experience with Heartbreak Hill. So my my experience with Heartbreak Hill was that if it were just Heartbreak Hill, it wouldn't even be that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But it is one of many hills you're going to see yeah. starting in those later stages of the race. Mm-hmm. And that's the final culmination. Yeah, It's almost like taking a punch, a few punches from a boxer. You may be able to take a few, but then that last... And, and that heartbreak last, kill is almost the last knockout that, blow that, if you're not that, prepared. That's, that's the roundhouse, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so what I would say is just be prepared mentally. I always, for me personally, I go into the race knowing the race starts at mile 12 and then it really intensifies about 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. And so the mm-hmm. first 10 to 12, I'm enjoying the race, kind of, you know, waving the crowd and kissing babies to some degree. <laughs> um... But then 16 to 17, that's when you need to start the eye of the tiger yeah. kind of yeah. mentality. And and fittingly, like I said, the Newton Firehouse is right there. Mm-hmm. And so they'll probably be playing eye of the tiger when you make that one turn, that one right turn to start going to the hills. Um, the year that I did it, it was year 2000. This is actually an uh, uh, indication of that. They were playing Rockefeller Skank by Fat Boy Slim. All right. Right on. Yeah. yeah. And and the woman I was dating at the time really liked that song, and so it reminded me of her, so it put me in a positive state of mind, I guess. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, uh, so yeah, you'll go up those hills, and then, like you say, I, you know, and like I said a few minutes ago, you get onto Heartbreak Hill, you run to the top of Heartbreak Hill, and literally mile 21 is at the crest of the hill. Yeah. Um, and, and 
I remember when I crested that hill, I was like, that's it? Because I'd run so many more hills in the Atlanta right. area and everything. And I'd run some really hard hills in my life. And at that point, I was kind of psyched. I was like, that's it? All right. Hey, here we go. Let's roll on down to that. And and sure enough, you pretty much roll on down to the finish from that point. Yes. Um, so, so you crest at, at 21 feet uh, or 21 miles. Um, and that is the high point of the whole second half of, of the entire race. Um, and then it kind of screams downhill for about three miles and then flattens out for about the last two miles there. Um, the, and let me say this too. Yeah. The, you win those final hills in the first 16 miles of the race. So oh, one, yeah. you know, talk about how people think that the net downhill will make it a fast race. But one of the things that makes Boston such a difficult race to run well is you are essentially running downhill for however many miles, and then um, you start going up. So it's down mm-hmm. and then up. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're essentially pounding all the power out of your quads, mm-hmm. and then right when you have nothing left to drive home and to really kind of you know kick it into that, that fourth gear, oh, by the way, here's a series of hills for <laughs> five miles or so. Yeah. So that's what can be so devastating. So the biggest piece of advice I could say with Boston is, Run smooth on the downhills mm-hmm. so you have enough to power through the uphills mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. And if you see somebody who's charging the uphills, because uh, there's like there's like slight bunny hops or so, mm-hmm. the first 15 or 16, mm-hmm. let them go. Because yeah. trust me, there will be plenty more where that came from. Yeah, you'll see them again. Um, later on in the, in the race. So the, the, one of the big focuses, so we talked about the first few miles, the focus is on not going out too fast. Mm-hmm. For me, I, then I always focused on, in the middle of the race, running smooth on the downhills so I can have enough power to drive the uphills mm-hmm. miles 16 to 21 mm-hmm. or so. Because yeah. once you hit those hills, there's no turning back. Yeah. You know, There's no saying, oh, well, I messed up. Let me see if I can readjust. Right. Because they're going to keep coming. Yeah. Um, my, my, my macro advice for the Boston Marathon is to say that, that, that you keep it under control for yeah. those first 16 miles and and you 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 treat those first 16 miles as is almost like a warm up right for for those hills then you hit the first hill you turn it from 5 to 6 right second, second hill you turn from 6 to 7 third hill 7 to 8 fourth hill you know heartbreak hill is a fourth hill yeah 8 to 8.5 right right and you crest that hill and you're at 8.5 and at that point you only have 5 miles to go you keep it at 8.5 Right. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And and at that point you're going to speed up a lot because now you're going you're screaming downhill for the last five miles, right? For the last eight k. Um, but but that's kind of always what I say is that, that that you hold back, hold back, hold back, and then you start turning gradually, turning up your effort over the five miles of those hills, climaxing with Heartbreak Hill, and then you just keep that effort high because at that point, by the time you get to the other side of those hills, there's only five miles left to go on the race. And, and I would say too, at that point, if you run the race smart. You're gonna blow by a lot of people oh, who yeah. didn't. Yeah. So sure. kind of so pick people out and be like I'm gonna catch that guy in red. I'm gonna catch that guy in orange. Yeah. You know, ahead of you. For sure. Um, because there are a lot of people that are gonna be blowing up. Yeah. You know, usually around heartbreak heartbreak hill. Yeah. You know, and this is this is, you know, you mentioned how 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 Boston Marathon exemplifies all the things you love about running. I think it also kind of exemplifies a marathon, which yeah. is totally fitting because because it's the longest running marathon in the world but in every marathon you want to take it easy for the first part you want to gradually turn up your effort between between uh, 15 and 20 miles and then you want to 
um, you know, hang on running as hard as you can there for the last five or six miles. That's essentially the strategy for every marathon. But it's it's crucial in the Boston Marathon because it's so easy to mess up. Right. <laughs> because you because because the course and the emotion and the competitors all encourage you to go out too fast. Yeah. And then right at that place where you're trying to turn up the effort, there's hills. <laughs> right. And then and then if you've saved something, you can really blaze that last eight, uh, that last eight k, that last five miles. You can really blow through that. Um, you know, when I when I did it back in the day, I I had a very fast last ten k, mm-hmm. um, and it was in part because I I had jogged for the first half of the race, and it was in part because um, I was just so fired up to get on the other side of, of Heartbreak Hill. Yeah. Um, you know, and so so I really feel like Boston is in so many ways the quintessential marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and accordingly, your strategy should be the quintessential marathon strategy. Right. Yeah, and to your point, it's funny. So I told you I made the mistake in 2014 and blew up. In 2015, I said, all right, I will never do that again. <laughs> and I ended up running the, 10, the final 10K like 20, 30 seconds a mile faster than mm-hmm. the, the preceding 20 miles yeah. because yeah. once you get over that hill, yeah. it's amazing, A, how exciting it is. Yeah. That's when you can kind of finally look around and say, I'm at the Boston Marathon. This is fantastic. I'll let loose. Um, combined with the adrenaline of, of, of being able to pass people. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the finish line being metaphorically in sight. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's another good thing you, point, you, you bring up. So a lot of people talk about the Sitco sign, right? When you see yeah. the Sitco sign, you're almost there. Mm-hmm. When you see the Sitco sign, you are almost there in the same way that like, oh, I'm four miles out and I'm almost at the finish line. <laughs> like, you see it for a while. Just yeah. be warned. Right. Like, you're going to see it long before. To me, the real marker is being at Fenway Park at the 25.2 mile yeah. Uh, yeah. marker. And the baseball game's just letting out and the crowds are starting to filter out and towards cheer for the marathoners. Right. It's, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Um, all right, man. Final thoughts on the, uh, on the Boston Marathon? Yes. Another thing to think about is... The weather at Boston. Ah, uh, yes, thank you. For so that. I can because because that affected you last year. I would say it's affected me probably every year except for 2014. Okay, um, and I took care of that myself. I, I was going to say took Matt, I took Matt in my own hands. 2014, it was irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I could have been downhill on roller skates and still right. blown that one. Right. Um, 2015, it was a driving rain. I don't know what the exact temperature was, but I can tell you. It was cold. Like, literally, I finished the race, and they were grabbing people, throwing them in wheelchairs, and running them indoors, because it was like a... Like, almost every runner had some kind of, like, hypothermic chill at the end of that race. It was cold. I mean, it was... The actual temperature was, like, high 30s, low 40s, and we were running into a headwind with a driving rain. Not a drizzle, but, like, a driving in-your-face, I-can't-even-look-up-without-a-hat-type rain. Gross. Um, Two years later... It's like 76 degrees, and I got sunburned at the start. Right. So when you make your goals for, for Boston, I would say you need to have about a five-minute range or so. Mm-hmm. And no, you can't really tell what, what yeah. exactly your goal is going to be within that range until yeah. you are at the starting line. Yeah. And that's not very comforting for if, if this yeah. is your first one, but you really need to do that. Like I remember last year we had our big group there, and I had kind of my range, and I, and I told people at the start, I said, we're going to have to make this at the end of the range. We're right. going to have to make our goal. Push your goal back, three to right. your ideal goal back, three to five minutes. Right. And that does not sound like, that's not a great rah-rah speech to give at a starting line, <laughs> but it was the right move. Yeah. People who did not adjust their goal pace yeah. blew up. 
because it was hot. Yeah. And as you know, a hot marathon has, I mean, when, when the Forget temperature's that high, yeah. you're not going to run your best. You're Pretty not going right. to, yeah. and unless you have a very soft PR, you're not going to run a PR. Right. Right. And then along those same lines, I would say if this is your first Boston marathon. Well, okay. So, so I'm going to, so on the okay. weather, just kind of throw out real quick, just, just to give a positive example. Um, in mm-hmm. 2011, mm-hmm. Uh, there was a tailwind, mm-hmm. um, and the winner, a guy named Jeffrey Mutai, ran 203.02, mm-hmm. um, and had to outkick the second place guy. Right. And then Ryan Hall, the American, I want to say it was third or fourth, um, and he ran 204. He ran under 205. He ran 204, mm-hmm. which was his PR by several minutes, by two or three minutes. Um, and so. That was like the perfect day weather-wise, and so 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 lest you think that we're we're describing oh the weather's gonna be bad so you're not gonna get your PR, the weather might be, yeah, brilliant and you're gonna PR you know you you'll be five minutes in front of your fastest goal so right anyway, so 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 it cuts both ways as far as the weather goes you know like like they say in many places they say in New England if you don't like the weather wait an hour um, you know particularly in the middle of April it's just a very fickle time of year that's the other thing too I remember in. Tw- I, I, think it was 2016 i could be remembering wrong the whole weekend we were there with the family it was freezing on the day of the race it was hot <laughs> so i mean you almost can't even predict based on what your trip up is like or what the weekend before is like right um and so uh yeah so be prepared for all types of weather be prepared to wear a hoodie to the starting line when you're waiting in athletes village yeah. and be prepared to be almost stripped down to nothing at, right. at athletes village right. um and, and bring pl- Bring enough clothing to um, cover yourself for, for both scenarios. Uh-huh. And then along those same lines, I would say if this is your first Boston Marathon, it is logistically a very hard race. It's a very exciting race. I would almost recommend going in with a soft goal rather than a hard goal mm-hmm. because you really want to enjoy the experience. You, you may not necessarily be able to get th- to do this again. Yeah. And it really is a unique experience. It is one that will not disappoint as long as you don't bonk too hard or end up in a you know medical tent or something. So I would highly <laughs> which, recommend... Which you won't if you follow our advice. <laughs> right, right. Um, Hit rewind, listen to it all over again, <laughs> and you have nothing to worry about. Um, and it really is special. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... I, I, I've heard... I've talked to so many people who have said, yeah, I, I went to my first Boston, and I was going to PR... And then I didn't, and I left unsatisfied with the race. And that really kind of put a damper on the whole experience. I would really recommend not doing that if this is your first one. Go, learn what Boston's about, take in the atmosphere, and enjoy it. Right on. Thanks, Patrick. Hey, thanks, George. Thanks for bringing your experience to bear here. And good luck to everybody in Boston. And there you have another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. You can read our show notes at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com or you can reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to go to our sponsors' websites. Go to itlcoaching.com. Find ITO Coaching and Performance at ITO Coaching on Twitter and reach out to them on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITO Coaching and Performance. Finally, of course, don't forget my wife, the travel planner, who also sponsors the show. You can find her on Facebook, facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV. You can drop her a line at Casey, K A C I E, Casey Travel Planner at gmail.com or go see her at her website, CaseyTravelPlanner.com. 
Thanks again, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. And good luck at the Boston Marathon.